This program is presented by a community producer through Midland Community Television. The City of Midland and MCTV are not responsible for the content of the program. The views presented do not necessarily represent those of the City of Midland or MCTV. If you would like to produce your own program, contact MCTV at 837-3474 or access our website, cityofmidlandmi.gov slash MCTV. The following presentation of the Midland City Planning Commission will begin in a moment. The Midland City Planning Commission is responsible for overseeing the city's master plan, conducting public hearings, and offering recommendations to the City Council on a wide range of local land use issues. The Planning Commission consists of nine Midland residents who are appointed by the City Council. Planning Commission meets two Tuesdays per month at 7 p.m. in Council Chambers at City Hall. This presentation is provided by the MCTV Network, a service of the City of Midland. Replays of this meeting can be found on MGTV Channel 188 on Charter Spectrum, through Channel 99 on AT&T or on demand at www.cityofmidlandmi.gov. Select meetings are available on MCTV Network's Government Affairs Podcast Channel. Good evening and welcome to this special meeting of the Midland City Planning Commission taking place on Tuesday, April 25th. This meeting is called to order. Can you please call roll? Broderick? Yes, I'm here. McCoy? Here. Craig? Collinger? Here. Bain? Here. Mayville? Panasic? Decro? Here. Mr. Chair, you have a quorum. All right. Next item on our agenda is the uh, City Master Plan uh, update. And we have two items there, and we're going to begin with a presentation by Richard Murphy. All right. I'm going to just take a moment. I'll introduce Richard to everyone. Um, I was really excited uh, when Mr. Murphy reached out to me. We've known each other for a while. He's one of the sharpest guys around the state of Michigan in terms of thinking innovatively about um, how cities can be prepared for the future. Um, and I've had the good fortune of working with him on other projects in the past. And Michigan Municipal League recently launched a new tool related to housing. They've done a lot of work in the housing space, particularly over the last couple of years. And it seemed very well aligned to some of the work we're doing in Midland. And since he offered to come up and share about that work and the timing was right, we went ahead and invited him up. So before turning it over, I'll tell you a little bit about him. So. Um, Richard Murphy is a Policy Research Labs Program Manager for Michigan Municipal League. He assists communities with transportation and land use planning, placemaking, economic development, and technology issues. He joined the League in 2014. He previously served as the City Planner in Ypsilanti, a Programs Director for the Michigan Suburbs Alliance, and on the Board of Directors for the Regional Transit Authority of Southeast Michigan. He holds degrees in Computer Engineering which sounds really tough, and urban planning, which I can assure you is much easier from the University of Michigan. So with that, I'll turn things over to Murph. All right, thank you. Um, and I'll try to live up to the uh, glowing introduction. Uh, Just first, projector figure off, off turn and the uh, technology on. All right, there we go. So I will say uh, computer software and zoning, it's all code, it's all complex systems, and it all breaks. So there's a whole lot of troubleshooting and a lot less like writing interesting stuff. Um, 
So uh, as Jacob mentioned, um, I admit I was watching your, uh, your previous meeting of either the Commissioner City Council where Urban 3 was doing their, their land value analysis for the city, which is um, a favorite topic of mine. Uh, and I think there was a mention of um, pre-reviewed plans in that meeting perhaps that I had reached out to Jacob and said like, hey, would it be okay if I came and presented the work that we're doing here? Um, so first, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the Michigan Municipal League. We are a statewide member organization uh, made up of 530 city and village governments and a few townships, um, large and small. So it's everybody from uh, the city of Detroit to tiny towns of 500 people in the Upper Peninsula. Um, we've been around for 125 years as of next summer. Um, and we provide training and conference opportunities for local officials, as well as advocacy in Lansing and, and DC. Um, sort of a phone a friend function for, for local government officials who need sample ordinances or uh, quick legal references. Um, and my team is on the research and develop side. And we say we research and develop and share. We're looking to create new tools or new um, processes and then give them away to the, the broader community to use. Um, there's five of us on my team. So with 500 members, we can't personally implement everything we do with all of them. So our goal is to, to build things and then get them into the hands of the consultant community and the local governments to figure out how does it work on the ground in an individual community? Um, so one of the needs that we've picked up in the last few years is that all of our communities around the state, large and small, are facing housing shortages. Um, I know Midland was already starting to look at housing as a need uh, before COVID hit. It's become that much more widespread and severe everywhere in the last few years. Um, as part of that need, most of our communities around the state need more diversity of housing options to fit different uh, family sizes and types. It's you know what somebody needs when they're a 20-something just starting out in their own household is different from uh, you know, my family. I have two elementary schoolers um, and just recently uh, moved house to, to a bigger place with a more than one bathroom. Um, uh, to my parents who are empty nesters and wanted to downsize from the house that they uh, raised three kids in. So how do we make sure that our communities have the full range of housing options, rental ownership, different sizes, different formats to fit the different needs that members of our communities have, not just a single family owner occupied house versus a big apartment complex, but stuff in the middle as well. Uh, we also wanted to look at New homes that we're building should fit in and contribute to the local sense of place in a community. Yeah, you see our, our tagline down at the bottom, we love where you live. We want to bring in uh, new development that supports what you already have rather than um, sort of sticking out and going in a totally different direction. Um, and we also want to tackle whatever we can of the idea that building new homes is expensive and slow. Um, that between the, the process of getting uh, the land and the entitlements and the permits and all the trades, labor, and, and whatnot lined up, um, there's a lot of steps before you can even put a shovel in the ground. And while the city can't do anything about the cost of lumber or the cost of electricians, we can at least tackle some of those front-end costs and unpredictabilities. 
to make it a little faster to get those shovels in the ground and get things built. So while we're looking at needs now, uh, we looked a little bit back in time to see uh, what our communities had from the past. And looking at some of these models from communities around the state where it is a multifamily home, maybe it was a, a family that built it with uh, a rental suite for extra income or a multi-generational home um, or multifamily rental from the start. Uh, but often in our historic districts from 100 years ago, uh, some larger versions, some smaller and more modest, uh, but all of them kind of fit their neighborhood. They fit their setting. They architecturally are very similar to homes of the same age that are just single units nearby. So looking at uh, our, our construction industry as having a really good pipeline of that single family house and a really good pipeline for the big apartment complex, the need that we chose to target was that that small scale, it's two homes, it's four homes, um, but something that you know, maybe someone could own and have their, their aging parents or their adult children live in the other unit or rent out for that extra income or um, just a, a small scale developer looking to invest in their neighborhood building a small rental house. So again, we look back in time and see the catalog homes that uh, different companies put out whether that was the Sears kit homes uh, that a lot of people like to go around and, and um, hunt out in the wild, or Aladdin homes, which I think was out of Bay City nearby. Um, companies that would sell these patterns of homes and often the kits to build them. Um, and so we see uh, the same housing types popping up around the state and around the upper Midwest, just a, a regional vernacular architecture created by um, so in part by some of these standardized home plans. And I cannot claim any credit for uh, regional vernacular. That's totally Melissa, our project manager, who comes from a historic preservation background. So, you know, we can see you know, this, uh, this handsome Gratiot model, which is a duplex upstairs and downstairs units, um, or the Manchester, again, is a duplex left and right side, but just a, a single front door from the street. Uh, or this one here, the Parkside, um, another duplex. Uh, this one's in Berkeley, uh, down in the Oakland County suburbs. Um, but one of your building officials pointed out that you have several of a very similar model to this uh, scattered around your neighborhoods here as well. Um, and you can see there's some, some detailing differences. Uh, the catalogs included a few different uh, finish options for each model that they sold. Um, but the idea was this is something that an individual homeowner could buy the plans, buy the, the parts, and get built for themselves and rent out that extra apartment rather than it being a big scale developer coming into town. So we know that these homes are scattered throughout our communities, including your near downtown neighborhoods here. Um, but in a lot of our communities that we work in, new homes like this would be pretty hard to build that we can look at it and say, yeah, it, it looks nice, we have homes that look like that, but when we get into the details of, okay, it's a duplex, so that zoning-wise is gonna be a challenge in a lot of places. Um, in some communities, just having two off-street parking spaces for a duplex is gonna be another problem that they'd have to get a, a variance for, uh, and maybe uh, setbacks or lot coverage starts to come in as challenges on some of this, or how many 
square feet of lot space do you need per unit for a multifamily home? So if I look in my neighborhood in Ypsilanti at a vacant lot down the street, um, I might want to build a home like that on this block in the historic district, but I can tell you from having been in the planning department there and knowing the process um, and some of the hurdles like we don't have a full-time building official, we share one with another community so they're not in the office all the time, there's the historic district review process. Um, it would probably take months from I have a lot, I have these plans to yes, I can build that home and all that time is time that I'm sitting on my financing and uh, have costs accruing for this house that I haven't even got a permit to build yet. So that in and of itself can be a deterrent, especially for that smaller scale locally based developer who's just looking to, to invest in their neighborhood. So um, here's my matrix slide. My other slide deck has a frozen reference. That one my kids like better. Um, so we're trying to recreate that old catalog home approach in a more modern code context to say, let's see how much of that upfront time and uncertainty we can remove from the process so that uh, a builder can get to the point of putting a shovel in the ground as quickly as possible once they identify their opportunity and so that we can get that housing online and people living in it as quickly as we can. So we uh, secured some funding from MEDC through their Redevelopment Ready Communities Program and enlisted the help of East Arbor Architects in East Lansing um, and came up with uh, our pattern book homes for the 21st Century Michigan Guide where we have this guidebook that lays out all of that history that I've just gone through and uh, some of the, the hurdles to getting houses built now. We have produced so far two uh, full construction plan sets for new build housing under current building codes um, that we are, are making available to anyone for free without having to pay royalties. Um, we've already covered the costs of that with our architect. Uh, and then us on staff, myself and uh, Melissa who heads up the project as the phone a friend for uh, you and the local communities who are looking at how does this fit locally and what would we need to do to make it work here. So um, I won't run through the full construction plan sets. Uh, we have one model that's the Linden is an up down uh, two story duplex. Um, both the units are a, a single floor so that that ground floor home can really be made fully accessible if it's uh, an older resident or someone who uses a mobility device and needs that accessibility without being blocked off from part of their house. Uh, and then the Grove is a fourplex. It has two apartments on the ground floor and two upstairs. And then with each of those plan sets, we have a few different options for finishes. So all six of those facade sketches you see there are really just these two different floor plans on the inside. It's just a little bit of variance on the, the roof line and styling to um, provide some variety so that uh, you could build several of these on a block and have them all look a little bit different. We are working with our architects on a next batch of homes, uh, trying to address some more of the needs that we've heard as we're talking about this around the state. Uh, one of those is going to be this cottage um, home. It's a two bedroom, one bath, uh, single floor, though with a potentially finishable um, partial upper story attic. Uh, so it can also be a, an accessible 
home for someone, um, but it could be built as a standalone or as uh, an above garage unit, perhaps as an accessory dwelling unit in someone's backyard. Uh, it could be built in a U-shape as a cottage courtyard with a central green space and maybe driveways to either side, or it could be um, strung together sideways uh, as a, a townhome style unit on a, a wider lot. Uh, the second of the next batch that we're building is a um, an up is a two-story side-by-side duplex. So uh, each of the units in this duplex is a two-story, um, just mirror-imaged around the the central wall. Um, again, this is something that could be a standalone, or it could be uh, ganged next to others in a, a more townhome format. Um, but each of the the duplexes would be itself uh, its own ownership unit uh, built under the, the residential code. Uh, and then the third unit, which is um, uh, maybe harder to use just on its own because it gets kind of tall and skinny, is this three-story model that's just that, that two-story townhome unit on top of a single-story flat on the ground floor um, with, again, that flat being an accessible unit. Um, just recognizing with this emphasis on accessibility that we have a rapidly aging population in Michigan and a lot of our historic housing stock is um, not accessible and often hard and difficult to convert. We wanna make sure as much of what we're in encouraging to be built as new construction is accessible as possible. So this we've kind of taken inspiration from new construction homes that are three stories or two and a half usually with a garage on the first floor and then the, the home kind of upstairs from it, but saying we really want to emphasize having that, that uh, at-grade living option and the parking can potentially be in back. Um, so those three patterns, we're expecting to have construction plan sets out uh, by June this year probably and up on the website, freely available. We're still in the review process with our advisory team and the architects getting the, the plans drawn up. So how can you use these? Um, there's a few different things that we've seen communities around the country do with similar approaches and that we're talking to different communities around the state and doing. One is uh, your building department could potentially pre-review these plans and say like, yes, we've seen these plans. We know that they conform to the relevant codes. Um, if we see these plans come in from a developer it's real easy for us to say, yeah, we know this, we've already seen it, we can approve it. The city could even put out their catalog of pre-reviewed plans to say, if you build one of these, then we've already done the code review and we know that it, it meets the requirements. Um, similarly, you can look at it from a zoning perspective and say, we know that this particular model fits in this zoning district on uh, whatever standard size lot is found in that zoning district. So maybe here's a map of all the lots where this model would fit without requiring any kind of rezoning or variance or other um, additional process to go through. Um, yeah, I mentioned my local historic district that I live in at home. Uh, you could similarly take it through a historic district process ahead of time so that uh, instead of each individual builder waiting two weeks to go to the meeting, the historic district has already seen and signed off on the plans and it can just be a staff approval. Um, but again, it's how many points of uncertainty or how many points of potential failure or no can you remove from the process 
for the plans that you've seen and that you like. Um, so you can also look at uh, steps beyond just the permitting itself of making that map of the available sites in the city and potentially ownership by the city or county or schools or churches that might want to be involved in producing housing. Uh, you could look at the, um, the array of incentives or abatements that are in place because we know that still the hard costs of construction are really expensive right now. So if you're looking to hit a range of price points with these, it might take uh, some fiscal support as well through some of those abatements. Um, and then we're also talking to, for example, MISHTA to see if we can get some of these plans um, pre-qualified for funding pro programs that they have available, um, like the missing middle housing incentive, uh, as well as talking to the Federal Home Loan Bank and some of the banks that do mortgage lending in Michigan. Um, we know that you can finance something up to four units as an owner-occupied residence. If you live in one of the units and rent out the other ones, um, and that, that can qualify under a, an FHA or VA mortgage as a um, standard owner-occupied mortgage, um, but it's not every lender who's familiar with those options or every mortgage broker. So part of the process might be working with local realtors and brokers to make sure that they know this and are, are ready to slot it through the proper process. Uh, we've also been talking to the Home Builders Association. Um, we're going to have them looking at our, our upcoming set of plans to try to give some cost estimates uh, on those as well as to try to pair up some of their member developers who do this style of homes to try to get some of these out there and built because so far we're still, it's plans, it's theoretical. We can't say, oh, this other community has already built five of them and that's how well it worked. Um, and then we have a couple of developers we're working with who have been part of our advisory committee who have larger site plans in the works and they're looking at incorporating some of these plans into their existing site plans as part of the, the mix of homes just again to prove the concept and show that it works. So those are some of the things we're working on beyond the individual city. Otherwise, we're talking to individual communities to see what are the needs that you have and how might some of these fit or what are the questions that Jacob needs to wrestle with uh, with our assistance in order to uh, make this concept actually something that would work well in Midland. Maybe it's even you like the concept, you don't like these plans, you would want to find an architect to draw up your own Midland-specific ones that, that fit local architecture. Um, but in the meantime, just an acknowledgement of some of our partners and um, precedents on this. Uh, MEDC has funded our work on this so far so that we can offer those plans free of charge and try to accelerate housing delivery in our communities around the state. Um, as we know, that is a barrier for economic development and uh, workforce availability in communities. Um, we've been working with uh, the Congress for New Urbanism um, and the Project for Code Reform and some of the experts that they have looking at similar efforts around the country as precedent. Um, and the Michigan Sense of Place Council, which the League has been a part of with uh, MSU Extension and uh, MISHTA for about the last 15 years, looking at how do we really support communities in uh, reinforcing and reinvesting in their sense of place locally. So that's a lot of talking from me fairly fast, but I wanted to leave room for you all to ask questions or give feedback. 
um, or let us know what pieces of this you might uh, be interested in seeing more of in the future or not so much. Yes. I didn't know any plans from what I could see up here specifically for accessory dwelling units. Mm -hmm. Did I miss them? So the only one that is specific for ADUs is that cottage, which could be an above garage ADU or a backyard unit. Um, we were primarily focusing on the main home because we know that there are some catalogs of ADUs out there, including a couple of Michigan builders who have um, uh, sort of stock units that they can deliver on a, a truck to you. Uh, so we, partly because we knew there were some options for that already and partly just the types of housing that MEDC was interested in seeing additional options for, didn't focus on ADUs so far. Sure. Yeah, just to follow up on that, uh, have you been talking to any people who have manufactured houses or how these would fit into a manufactured housing scheme? We've, because it looks like, yeah, it, you know, there's not too many options to bring down the costs, and that may have some hope. Right. We we have been looking at those options mm -hmm. um, and have one of the members of our of our advisory committee is a developer who has worked with um, modular and pre-manufactured mm -hmm. options yeah. in the past. Um, and with the new set of patterns, our architects are looking at SIPs, uh, structurally insulated mm -hmm. panels, as at least that, that chunk of wall that can be um, pre-built and delivered. Uh, the challenge we've had there is, first, we want to make sure that we actually have patterns that are appealing to communities right. and see a couple of them built um, so as one-off stick built before mm -hmm. we uh, can really make the case that there's a market for these to a, a manufactured home producer um, to start building them modularly. The other challenge we've had is that right now the cost difference is smaller than we would like it to be and smaller mm -hmm. than it has been in the past because so many other people have also discovered yeah. the modular home cost savings and it's really driven up the cost of those and the availability as well. So there's there's a backlog and it's not as much of a time savings as we would like either. So yes, it's on the agenda for maybe um, 3.0, but um, we're not quite there yeah. yet. What's the smallest size that the city Midland allows for new construction? Thousand? No, you could go down to 400 square feet, I believe, by code, because we have a 20-foot outside wall minimum um, for any elevation. But beyond that, I don't believe we have any. For single-family detached, I don't believe we have any minimums. We do have square footage requirements for when you get to attached um, that vary depending on the bedroom size and the zoning district. But Okay. That would be a question I would have if you are running into that at all, or what does that look like for you? So um, we, we have not yet come across minimum square footages in the communities we're talking to, though um, helped by the fact that in a couple of places, um, Hazel Park is one that's in the midst of a zoning rewrite and was already looking at enabling smaller home sizes. Okay. So we've made sure that they have these concepts so that they can see like, yeah, don't set a minimum square footage of 650 for your cottage type if we're coming in with one that's 625. Yeah. Uh, so they're they're just at the right time and they're they're um, 
zoning update to really work those in naturally. But yeah, that is definitely one of the, the zoning audit pieces that we recommend communities look at is, do you have a square footage minimum set? And uh, if so, what types of housing might that be eliminating, whether it's a, a total building square footage or a per unit square footage. Is there, um, you mentioned that you have code amendments, I think you said, that uh, are readily available. Mm -hmm. Is there any particular one of those or a couple of those that are used more frequently than others in your experience? Or I'm just curious. So I think we, we list a few in the, the guidebook um, that are, I mean, square footage is one of them. Setbacks are another, just first of all, the the front setback, okay. um, as well as uh, looking at side setbacks and figuring out, you know, make sure that this uh, 28, 28 foot wide facade fits on a residential lot with a, a side driveway, because I know that all your parking is going to need to be right. front loaded since you don't have alleys to work with. Um, so we do provide the numbers in the book for, like, if you want to put this model sure. on this size lot, here's the, the lot coverage percentage you're going to need to look at, and here's the, the setbacks that will make it work. Um, parking requirements are, uh, can be a, an issue, and probably one of the big ones is how much, if you're building a, a two-unit home or a four-unit home, how much of the lot do you need to pave to meet your parking requirements on that, and do you have any yard left over? So, um, Generally, I recommend like a one off, off street unit per one off street parking space per unit is plenty, especially if you allow overnight on street parking. Um, oftentimes, having no parking requirement whatsoever is okay because the financing step will really look at what's going to sell at the market or what's going to rent and how much parking do you really need for that. So that acts as a check on the, the builder right. and financing side independent of the, the local ordinance. So the corollary to that would be is you talked about square footage, setbacks, um, parking. Like are those, are the current ordinances around those the most onerous? In, or is it a different set of ordinances the most onerous? I'm getting at kind of at the very beginning you mentioned kind of four bullet points around like hey we want to do this in this area. I'm just yeah. curious like what if there's one or two of those, it's basically just taking it completely off the table at the outset. Um, so at yeah, I think for the for the patterns that we've presented, probably the biggest um, the biggest factor that'll limit how yeah how extensive of use can you how extensive use can you get out of these patterns is how much of the the residential area of the community would actually allow a two unit okay. or a four unit property. Um, Printed use by right, correct? By right, okay. yeah. So without having to go through a special use or a rezoning to get there. Um, I know that, uh, so I've, I've seen communities where like a neighborhood is, is single units only, except that corner lots can be duplexes or townhome mm -hmm. formats, um, in part because there's the mm -hmm. assumption that you can more easily right. arrange parking access on a corner lot. Uh, Again, I'll reference Hazel, Hazel Park. Their zoning ordinance is moving to a, a form-based code model where they're looking at um, primarily at the, 
the massing, the, the height of the home, the placement on the lot, and then if it's one home or two inside it, as long as it meets the dimensions on the outside, it's fine. Um, so that's another approach to look at to, to enabling. Or it's just taking these and recognizing it's going to work in this neighborhood, it's not going to work in that neighborhood. And maybe that's the place where looking at options like ADUs or um, similar might be a different step that's needed for some of those places. So it's a two-step change in that you need to have additional, you need to have the permitted uses by right to begin with, and then there's additional changes potentially to the code itself beyond that, it, even if it is permitted to make sure that it's not as onerous to do it at that right. point. It's right, a, it's, it's <laughs> at the zoning stage evaluating right. where could we build these um, without changes, and then if we want them elsewhere, do okay. we make those changes? Um, and then the permitting process is a separate step that more focuses on the the building code and review process and what it takes um, to get through those stages to have the ability to build. So. You, um, are you, have you guys been able to quantify at all the cost savings to a developer of making things less onerous or speeding up approval processes or anything of that nature? So I think we've, uh, the one that's easiest to quantify is just the cost of the plans okay. that we've looked at um, like readily available commercial plan sets for uh, two and four unit homes in similar styles and it's between $5,000 and $20,000 to buy the plans okay. um, or pay your own architect to draw your own up. Uh, so it's at least that like right up front cost savings to not get the plans. Um, what the, the time value is of those process changes is hard to say. I think it's really more the, uh, the uncertainty step of needing okay. a discretionary approval is does somebody even start the process the if they place. know that there's this possibility that they get three months in and get a no. So it's not necessarily, because probably what I'm getting at is whether or not it's a driver of the actual cost for somebody to eventually live there. Right. right. I think it's it's going to be um, a few percent of the cost of the home, probably, just in terms of raw dollar value. Um, if you're really looking to drive down the cost of it, then we have to start looking at things like what's the cost of the land? Is right. there a, okay. an owner who, for public interest or charitable interest, wants to donate the land? Um, and that's, I think, where Kalamazoo is going primarily because they do have a lot of publicly owned vacant lots, which your neighborhoods are relatively much more intact than the ones that they're looking at. And so uh, don't have that same opportunity of existing vacant land owned by the city that they can provide for free. Um, or it's looking at some of the incentives like the, the neighborhood enterprise zone that provide a, a tax savings for the, the homeowner. Because one thing we've been talking about too is not just making more kinds of housing stock available, but just making housing in general more accessible right. to more people. <laughs> yeah, it's the it's the what's the what's the price point and right. what part of the community is able to afford that, um, and yeah, new housing right now is really expensive, and there's only so much we can do to to fix that. James. Yeah, I was just wondering, maybe Jacob has a feel for that. What, you know, of 
say, a $300,000 house in Midland, what percent of that is the lot versus the actual structure? Do you have a feel for mm -hmm. that? Well, if you're talking new construction, you're not yeah. going to find a whole lot at the $300,000 price point these yeah. days. Um, and the I would I would my educated guess would be that the ratio of lot value to structure value has changed recently because of construction costs. So oh, okay. uh, the structures themselves, we've got we have developments that were high two hundreds two years ago mm -hmm. that are now selling for low fours with the same floor plan, same builder, same specs. Yeah. Um, and that's I don't I wouldn't equate that to land value so much yeah. as the um, supply um, lacking out in the in the world and the cost of construction increasing. So you've got kind of two factors yeah. increasing the the price point that homes will have to command to to be buildable, but right. also can command because of the market um, in our building trades program. So our duplex projects we've been building at Ashman and Cambridge, if you're familiar yeah. with the public schools, you know, those are projects that keep in mind have have labor through the school yeah. district, the students, they've got project managed by, by the city and the land is fairly subsidized and just on a uh, construction basis for the homes and their utility connections, we're at about 200,000 per unit, about 400,000 overall for a duplex. And those are those are very nice homes, but those are not. Yeah, they're um, they're yeah. not high end. They're not you know they're, they're vinyl sided asphalt shingle. These are you know mass market materials that would generally be used for new construction at a you know reasonable price rate. So. Okay. Thank you. I think the only other question for me would be is, put yourselves in our position having just heard a presentation like this what's what's the first thing you would do next well I know that Jacob has a, a zoning audit already that you all have been working on that I think touches on some of the issues um, I think the next thing for you to do would be to look at uh, the guidebook and the plans which I think Jacob can share out to you where you can download from from that link um, and take a look and say like if we like this concept, are these the plans that we would like to see? And is that our target that we are looking at our zoning with in mind? Um, or is it we like the concept, but we're looking for something different as far as home style architecturally or, or format? Um, so it's, it's trying to gauge what's the opportunity land-wise and do these plans fit those lands? Or is it, we like these plans, let's make them work and figure out where they fit in. Um, and I, I will admit, I don't know your, uh, your master plan process or, or zoning process right now well enough to say where exactly in that you might right. be. So. Okay. But I'm certainly happy to, to discuss further with staff um, as you go through that and see if there's more uh, targeted support we can give as questions come up. All right, any other questions? All right, thank you. Right. We appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, so next item under our city modern master plan, uh, we do have the zoning audit stress test.
Thank you, Mr. Chair. So we're gonna kind of jump back to the beginning of the meeting of it. I wanted to let Murph have a chance to go first in case he wanted to get on the road, but it looks like he's going to be uh, spellbound by my zoning audit presentation <laughs> for the time being. Um, but before I jump into that, as we've been doing at every step along the way with our special meetings, I just wanted to remind uh, the Planning Commission and the public of where we're at in the schedule. So we're getting, you know, clawing our way closer to the end of our special meeting calendar. Um, we do anticipate that in June, we will be bringing forward your um, final draft versions of the future land use and transportation maps. We're working on the public launch of those maps for um, the month of May. And then our intention would be to consolidate some of that feedback and bring back some maps for your review and consideration um, at June, at the June 13th special meeting is our intention. Um, that's our last um, special meeting that we anticipate holding. We do have a second special meeting in June on the calendar that we'll likely look to cancel if there's no need for that meeting. Um, and then we're gonna be heavy in draft mode, working on the plan document, um, which we would intend to bring back to you at your September meetings. So September 12th and 26th would be important dates to be in attendance. And then September 27th would be our joint meeting with city council where we would review the plan uh, in uh, preparation for bringing it back to council in October for release for the 63-day public review period. So we've got some big, big stuff coming as we move uh, through the summer and fall. So jumping into the, the substance of the presentation tonight, and I think uh, Murph did a great job of setting this up, which is great. Um, the intent of our stress test here is really to look at when someone in the community or elsewhere has a concept in Midland of a type of project they'd like to see. Is that project actually feasible when you apply our current zoning standards? And so the point is really to see where there might be hurdles that are standing in the way of things that we want to see. Um, and that's sometimes like the hardest thing to figure out because you might intuitively know like, gosh, we, why do we keep getting this kind of development? People keep building the same things and we never get anything like this. And it's not necessarily because nobody wants that or nobody wants to build that, um, but it may just be that our regulations lead people down one path and close a door on another. And so the, the purpose tonight is really just to continue that conversation and to give you some illustrations of some examples um, now, keep in mind, we can obviously debate whether the projects we'll share with you tonight are desirable. They may be desirable in part and not in whole. Uh, we tried to keep the scenarios broad just so we can keep an open mind. So the, the intention tonight is not to advocate that the three um, scenarios we'll present are you know, an ideal, this is the type of development that we must have in Midland. It's just merely to show some projects that happen, have been built in other communities recently that are development projects that might be suitable in Midland, in areas of Midland and all of Midland. Uh, they might not be, but they're nevertheless projects that would have some pretty significant regulatory hurdles to accomplish in our community. And so just raising that, kind of giving that light and letting you all consider that as we move forward in our master plan process. So with that, we do have three scenarios that we prepared tonight and the kind of like, we're gonna work from like the maximum scale downward. So we have a three-story mixed-use building um, project with a commercial and residential component. We have a neighborhood scale mixed-use building, which has an office, a townhouse, and an apartment component. 
and then we have a detached small lot single family residential townhome so this last example is is something that's very much akin to what you heard about when the mml is worked on um, and it's something that gets developed to pretty great frequency in a major community in the country and so these are just again things we don't generally see a lot of development like this in midland today and so these are just meant to be uh, illustrations of some things that you do see around the country that might be appropriate in portions of our community and we're going to just walk through what that would look like um, like here so a first example our mixed use scenario this is an actual project um, in ann arbor so this is a three-story mixed-use project um, that was approved uh, uh, very recently down in ann arbor um, the project itself it's it's a less than a two-acre site 72 residential units 3600 square foot of retail it's 40 foot in height has a 10-foot front setback an 83-foot rear setback and it provides 84 surface parking spaces so just we're going to run that real quick through different zoning districts of the community to see how that might square up this is the site plan for that development so you'll see it's got three street frontages um, that'd be on the north the west and the south just i'm familiar with where this location is in ann arbor and then the parking is located at the rear the building you know with pretty good uh, building frontage along the street and some direct accessibility into some units of the building from the public street um, a fairly dense you know urban style development certainly not the densest most urban style of development even for a three-story mixed-use building this is still pretty moderate in its impact um, you know i would look at this as a project that might be um, a good fit in certain parts of center city this might be an interesting infill project in the midland mall area this might also be a good fit for certain parts of our downtown and so uh, a project that could have some some interesting viability in portions of Midland and in some manner something similar to this so we ran it through three of our districts to, just to give you an idea of some of the the challenges that might exist um, with that so we we chose regional commercial which as you know is as many of our larger commercial areas of the community our office service district and our residential B district which is our multiple family district our principal district and so just on the first cut looking at is the use proposed by this building allowed you'll see that in these three districts this project wouldn't be feasible because either the retail use or the residential use isn't permitted in those three districts looking at front setbacks again they were 10 foot from those streets none of these districts would allow for a 10 foot front setback rear setback was 83 feet that is a conforming setback in all three of those districts so that is one area where this project would be viable in terms of parking the uh, i believe it was 84 parking spaces that were included in the project given the amount of retail which was about 3600 square feet given the 72 units of multifamily, that 84 uh, those 84 parking spaces would not be sufficient to get approval under our code in any of those three districts project height um, is compliant in both residential being regional commercial but it is not compliant in office service and number of units so the units per land area this project would would fail on all counts so um, just to give you a sense like if someone were to approach the city of midland and they had a property on eastman avenue or they had a property on saginaw road there would be a lot of potential hurdles to getting an approval of something like this which you know again we can disagree this is subjective but it's an attractive project it looks like it's got good materials and it would offer a type of housing that we have heard is needed in the community yes sir could that conceivably fly as a pud or 
<laughs> um, it would be possibly, but in going back to some of our conversation about removing process friction, as you yeah. all know, a PUD process is the, about the most onerous uh, <laughs> approval process that you can undertake with the highest level of discretion right. under our mm -hmm. procedures. And so, um, yes, possibly, but um, not easily. How big of a miss on some of these was it? Yeah, uh, it's a pretty good miss on a lot of them. So um, for setback requirements in particular. Um, we have most, bigger setbacks presumably, right? Most of our districts would require a larger setback generally in the 25 to 30 foot range at a minimum. And as building height increases in certain districts, those setback requirements also increase. Um, on parking, it's a pretty big mess yeah. um, with 72 residential units off the top of my head. It does vary by bedroom size, but we're probably looking 22. at a minimum of 140 parking spaces plus the retail. So we're a magnitude of probably... At least two. Yeah. yeah. Three. Two or so, three. So on something like that, would it be a matter of they have street parking or, I mean, they still got to park somewhere? Yeah. Or? Well, I think that the... Um, frankly, the probably bigger challenge is just we require uh, an excessive amount of parking per residential unit. We, we require usually one per bedroom at a minimum, if not more, and then guest parking <laughs> on top. Okay. And so um, that's where we would generally get into requiring that level of parking. Um, yeah, uh, height isn't, we're not that far off. Those are minor tweaks, but again, it doesn't really matter if you're a foot over height or you're 10 feet over height. To some degree, you're just over height. Um, the code doesn't um, currently provide us with any um, real dimensional flexibility in that manner. So um, over is over um, or under is under, depending on the nature of the standard. Um, so. It's not even worth asking the question like where would this be most feasible it's we're just <laughs> well so a project like this would be most feasible downtown, downtown um, yeah. it would be more feasible under the center city overlay that was recently adopted um, than it would be virtually anywhere else in the community but in our base districts this would be um, essentially impossible to construct and we were planning on tweaking the mall area uh, as i remember when we were looking at the zoning maps that discussion was going on so yeah i mean that's designated as a on the future land use map as a mixed use yeah. category which is new so if that hasn't totally bummed you out we'll go to mixed use <laughs> scenario number two <laughs> This is just meant to be educational. And, and, and I bring this up because, you know, there's a tendency for planning departments to get a perception of being like a department of no, because we are regulatory in nature. You know, we even fall in the public safety function of the city's budget. So we're, we're generally <laughs> oriented towards enforcing rules and the rules do have consequences in terms of what's possible. And so I think it's just interesting to, it was interesting for us to, we, we obviously knew that there would be some issues with these projects. Um, but to kind of see specifically where those issues fell. So again, this is an actual project. This is a project in Salt Lake City, a community that's got a lot of cool planning things happening, a lot of great quality development projects happening. And this is sort of intended to be more of a neighborhood commercial or a community commercial type setting. So this is less impactful. This might be in a law office or an insurance office at the corner or a doctor's office. It's got some housing, but it's a lower scale product. Not 
dramatically out of scale of what you might see in some of our existing neighborhood commercial areas that have historically been there for a long time. But it does have mixed use components, so, so it is a little bit more innovative in that respect. This particular site is less than half an acre. The project has eight townhomes and six apartments, a 992 square foot <coughs> office. It's 24 foot in height, has a 15 foot front setback, seven foot side setback, 10 foot rear, and it provides 12 parking spaces. One thing that's really interesting about this project is it's actually stacked parking. So there's like lifts in the garages to provide for that second parking space. Oh, so cool. I would imagine um, probably market conditions in Salt Lake City provide an opportunity for you to spend a little bit more money. <laughs> gonna say. Things like that <laughs> um, in terms of demand, but also there must be, there's probably some uh, regulatory standard or a financing requirement that's driving that uh, stacked parking mm. inclusion. So this is the site plan. You'll see the site's pretty well built out. The parking is integral to the building. We are dealing with less than a half acre of size, so this is probably roughly one and a half to two average residential lots in the city of Midland, and we do have a lot relatively going on here um, with those 14 residential units and the, the office space. So we ran this project through, again, three uh, districts where a type of project like this might fit, neighborhood commercial, office service and residential B, multiple family. So here we do a little bit better on the use category. We've got two of the districts where this mixed use project is possible. Residential B being the one holdout um, on that front. The townhouse use is actually not allowed in neighborhood commercial. While it is allowed in office service, even though multiple family is allowed in that district. So that's kind of an interesting nuance of our yeah. code. I won't pretend I know what the, why that nuance exists, but that nuance does exist. Um, this project with a 15-foot front setback does not meet front setbacks. Uh, with a 10-foot side setback does not meet side setbacks in any district. The rear setback of 10 does not meet rear setback requirements. The parking provided does not meet the parking requirement. It is compliant with height, but it's not compliant with the number of units per land area. So again, you know, we're talking about, we're talking about this. Scale-wise, not an overwhelming building. Quality-wise, looks pretty quality. Nice mix of housing, provides for that walkable component for the neighborhood in the form of the office. Not really possible in the parts of our zoning district where we're trying to encourage that, that type of thing, um, I think, as we move into the future. The second time we've seen setbacks as an issue, this one I think is worse than the previous one. <laughs> so I'm just yeah. curious, like purpose of setbacks in an ordinance at the outset. Yeah, so historically, like going back to the like beginning of zoning, setbacks really <laughs> came to be a thing because many cities had to undertake great costs to either buy or relocate buildings to widen roadways as cars came into fashion and became a common mode of transit. And so that happened down in Detroit with Woodward Avenue. Buildings were moved back you know, at great expense. They've done that all over the country. And so the initial idea of the setback was really just to provide room for road expansion. Um, over time, I think that it became an aesthetic choice because you get a front lawn and we kind of found other reasons to justify the front setback. But I think really when it came down to it, the core reason at the outset was just you know, your road might be 100 foot right. wide today, but it might be 200 foot wide tomorrow. So we should have that 50 foot setback so that we're not having to demo purchase, you know, right away or um, move buildings in order to accommodate road expansion in the future. 
One of the things you mentioned is public safety or health. Um, no, <laughs> I mean, it, it's definitely from a, uh, from the perspective of, uh, you know, a planner or a municipal official of the day, it makes a lot of sense if you're in that environment and that's what you're looking to do. I think in practice today, that's generally not, we're not generally, MDOT's not buying a lot of right away to expand right. roads where they can help it. They're trying to work within the constraints that exist. Um, and certainly those front yards often get filled with parking, so they're not often an aesthetic amenity necessarily. Um, and it goes a long way towards degrading the pedestrian environment because you do have the buildings further away from each other and also further away from the public sidewalk and street. So, um, but yeah, so the setbacks, the setbacks do become a huge issue for projects like this, even in areas where, you know, that would be that those setbacks are not, um, just an issue because this is a, you know, of the size of this. If this project was just somebody wanted to build a 990 square foot office building at the corner, this would still not meet setback yeah. requirements. So um, now they would have room to move it back. The question is, you know, is that provide the benefit of a walkable community that having the building closer to the corner? You lose the offer. density at that point too, and the mixed part of it. So our communities reducing setbacks eliminating them entirely is there like what's the happy medium <laughs> um yeah there it has been movement towards changing the approach to setbacks whether it's minimizing reducing um, eliminating or moving to a build to line model in a lot of places where <laughs> um, folks want to encourage buildings closer to the street to increase walkability especially when they're mixed use or commercial in nature um, so like a form-based code, which I know we've talked a little bit about form-based code, a form-based code typically does require that the building placement be within a certain distance of the road rather than the building placement be a certain distance from the road. So it's a different approach to thinking about that relationship between the kind of private realm and the public realm and how those two things interact. Um, you don't see that as much on a, like a single family residential context where there's sort of an ingrained pattern of having those, those setbacks and those yards. But within a within a office, retail, or mixed-use context, um, as we did with the center city overlay, it makes a lot of sense to uh, be more flexible in building placement to provide. Um, you can require people to build closer to the road, but you can also just make it possible for people to build closer to the road. That's a policy decision. Right now, the most of our codes the policy decision is to require the building to be placed away from the street regardless of the um, developers desires regardless of what might make the most sense for that site so scenario number three is out of houston and so if you've ever, if you've done much reading about zoning which i know all of you have because you <laughs> love being on the planning commission and you're very interested in what you do here <laughs> so yeah well so yeah so houston is famous for not having zoning which is a very misleading <laughs> understanding of what happens in houston houston doesn't have use zoning so in houston they don't regulate what type of activity takes place on a lot they have lots of other they have a land development code which is another way of saying they have zoning it just <laughs> doesn't have use components um, they also have a lot of other tools they use to regulate use it's just not done at a municipal level. But one of the cool things that Houston has done over the last um, decade or so is that they have reduced lot size minimums. 
and this has led to a um, explosion of uh, really like we talk, uh, Murph talked a little bit about that uh, like regional vernacular. So this is like a very regional Houston development style, which is these detached condos. And so, or I'm sorry, detached single families, townhomes. So if you look at these homes, these properties are uh, generally speaking zero lot line on one side, and they'll have a small setback of five to seven feet on the other side. So you just imagine in between each of those models, you know, to the right would be their private outdoor yard space um, <laughs> along the side to the left, the wall is their property oh, wow. line. So these are able to increase the amount of housing production, uh, lower the cost that relates to the land and really transform a lot of neighborhoods within Houston um, in, a, in a really dramatic way. They offer the benefits of fee simple ownership and they're much easier to mortgage because they're not a condominium product because you own it, you own the whole structure you own the land. These products also usually have a backyard, a private backyard, and so they do offer some of the benefits of traditional single family style development, but in a, in a much more urban scale. Um, so this is just a kind of a site plan example of a project in Houston where again, you see that there's um, zero lot line to one side. These projects do have a, a rear yard. You know, they're typically, these lots are typically in like the three to 5,000 square foot range, um, which is about half, a little bit less than half to two thirds of what the city of Midland's minimum lot sizes are. And, and our minimum lot sizes for residential development are not by any means um, unique to Midland. Those are pretty standard um, suburban lot sizes for a, for a city like Midland. Um, but this just gives you an idea what that looks like. This is very similar to one of the models that Murph showed you that MML is working on with the, that he referenced where the garage is typically on the bottom. So in Houston, that's pretty common. You've got the garage on the bottom and you've got two to three stories of residential single unit stacked on top. So this is, in this example, a 3,300 square foot lot. So 0 0.075 <laughs> acres. Wow. Uh, it's a detached townhome, three stories or 29 foot in height. It's got a 12 foot front setback, five foot side on one side, zero on the other, a 38 foot rear setback, and it does provide two parking spaces in the attached garage. So looking at use, residential B and B2, residential A4, which is our one and two family district, and then residential A1, which is our one of our single family districts. This use is allowed, it's a single family dwelling. This project meets set front setback requirements in only one of those districts, which is RB2. It meets side setback requirements in none of those districts. We do meet rear setback requirements. We do have a rear yard, 38 feet. We do meet parking requirements for the first time tonight, so that's exciting. We've got two parking spaces, which is the minimum required for a single family dwelling. For height, we violated the height standards of the code in every district, and we've also, as I mentioned, violated the lot area for this. So, so again, just you know, food for thought, it's a, it's a model of housing that's very popular in Houston. Um, these, I, I was alarmed, frankly, at how much these cost. They must pay a lot better in Houston than they do in <laughs> Michigan, because most of these, we're talking six, $700,000 and up um, for the privilege of living in, in one of these units. <laughs> but, and that's, and that's um, there was a recent study that came out looking at like the impact of this lot area change in Houston. And Houston's home prices relative to other like communities around the country have stayed relatively low. 
they've still increased, but they've increased at a slower rate than they've increased elsewhere. Houston's housing production has also risen faster than many of those other communities because they've created opportunity where a 3,300 square foot lot may have been part of a larger lot with one dwelling on it previously, they've been able to create two or three dwellings on those lots um, and you can't ignore the taxable value that you would create through that development as well as creating an opportunity to provide um, housing for people with a minimal amount of public infrastructure. So we're looking at probably, a, I think, a 30-foot lot width. Uh, so that's 30 foot of curb, 30 foot of roadway, 30 foot of water and sewer that's able to service a house as opposed to 80 feet, 90 feet, 100 feet per, um, that can start to have big benefits. Again, this is just to be clear, not the planning department's vision for the entire city of Midland. This is just simply an exercise to say there might be a site or a place in Midland where a development like this might be attractive. There might be a market for it, whether that market is 10 buyers or 100 buyers or 1,000 buyers, there may be a market for it, and currently we don't provide a pathway to create this product in Midland. So again, just meant to stimulate your thinking as we move forward in our master plan process and continue to think about amendments that we may want to consider as we move into our zoning update following the master plan process. So I'd welcome any questions, Mr. Chair. So with the RB2 and this one in particular, how much did we miss on the height? I know we missed on the lot size for all of them, but are we so, talking? Yeah, so interestingly, RB2 is actually a two-story maximum height. Oh. RB actually doesn't have a maximum height. Um, in the RB district, as your building gets taller, your setbacks increase. Okay. So as um, so, like Green Hills would be a great example um, on East Lawn Drive. Mm -hmm. Green Hills, I, I wish off the top of my head I knew the stories. I think it might be 10. That's in the RB district yeah. and that building just by virtue of setting it back. So you can have like a tower in a park or parking lot like setting um, in the RB district, but you cannot have, you couldn't have a larger uh, yeah. lot coverage. Um, RB2 is meant to be more neighborhood scaled, which I think is where that two story mm -hmm. height limit came in. And that becomes the, the deal killer here. I think Green Hills also were creative with respect to how they use the parking to be part of the setback too right and that's usually what happens i mean unfortunately that is usually the outcome is that the yeah. the green space preserved by those measures usually gets consumed with asphalt for parking um, to offset that standard so going back to richard's closing comments i think if i'm understanding correctly i mean regardless if the community looks at some of the pattern homes and likes the aesthetics, it sounds like most of them would be nearly impossible in most of Midland at this point. So the conversation's almost moot at that point. So we improve the use in the ordinance side of things? Yeah, well, I think the, the point is not to be, um, this isn't doomsday. Like that we no, were, it's a prioritization we, question, actually. <laughs> we want to be encouraging, the, the idea here is that there's a number of different ways that we can approach these challenges. One, one important piece is just to, again, understand that there's certain things that you just really can't build or are very difficult to build using current codes. And so just acknowledging that there's challenges and then thinking about how do we, how do we redress those challenges? Is it flexibility? Is it additional um, special zoning for certain parts of the community where we feel like these are things that really make sense? Um, there's different ways that we, we can approach that. And it may be a some and not all. It may be that right. we feel like 
giving on certain regulations and being more flexible makes sense, but there's other things that are too important to us and that we um, prefer the current um, approach. A balance of those, um, you know, these are three projects amongst a million different variations that you could see. Um, but it is, like I said, it's often hard for people to think about the things, the opportunities you've missed when you don't see them. People don't generally come to the Planning Commission to get denied. They come to get approved. <laughs> so if they've heard from Ryan or I in a phone call or they've researched our codes and they've already discovered that the property they're interested in, they can't do what they want to do, they're not going to come and usually beg the Planning Commission to do something you can't do, which is approve it, because you've already got a policy that says you can't. So um, this would give us the ability to be a little bit more proactive in our thinking so that we're prepared for projects like this if they come along and create those opportunities where we want to. Um, I think that's just really the, that would be the value there and kind of recognizing that there may be a reason why we don't see things like that in the community. It may not be that there's not a market, it just may be that there's a regulatory barrier. Does the ZBA get involved in some of those things or do they basically in such a say no mode that people don't <laughs> view that as a, a as a viable avenue? I'm going to leap to their defense. So yeah. <laughs> the ZBA's job is not to create regulatory flexibility for the sake of a project that people want to see. Their okay. job is to acknowledge specific factors related to a parcel of land that make strict conformance with our zoning regulations impossible. Okay. So that so. people have a fair playing field. So so their job is to say, Mr. Bain's house is next to Mr. Kane's house. Our mail's gonna get mixed up all the time. <laughs> you have a lot that's perfectly flat. Yeah. I have a lot with a giant slope. You can build a house in the right position that meets setbacks. I cannot because of the slope on my mm -hmm. lot. So I've got a unique condition that okay. maybe everyone else in the Planning Commission lives on our street. Everyone's lot is perfectly flat, but mine. The ZBA steps in to yeah. say, hey, that's not fair. You have a right to use your property just like your neighbors. So we're going to give you some relief so that you can do that. Okay. Um, you know, the, the other challenge with the ZBA process is the ZBA, there's more discretion, there's more uncertainty. It's another procedural roadblock. And yeah. to get to the point, so if we were to go to one of those projects, to have to be at the point where you know that you need the variances, you've got thousands of dollars. So if we're talking five to $20,000 yeah. for a fourplex, if we're talking about a mixed use project, you've, you've tied up the land, you've probably worked with your, your bank or lender, You've got you've probably got hundreds of hours, if not thousands, involved in the project, plus paying your engineer and your architect and your consult mm -hmm. other consultants just to even get before the ZBA. Taxes. Jamie was nodding pretty T taxes. Yeah. yeah. And all so of it. and the holding call and the opportunity that you've spent on that project yeah. versus another one. And I will tell you right now, because it is difficult to get projects to go, I think I've I've witnessed that developers are much more choosy about what they spend their time on because there's mm -hmm. so much risk uh, entailed in building right now that they're gonna, if they know that I can build a project in Royal Oak and I know the people and I know the process and my lender is familiar and I can replicate, that's kind of one of the geniuses of the pattern idea is that you can see that in what private developers do too, they replicate. They figure out how to build and sell, it's and they can scale. do it quicker, so they can do it cheaper. Their subcontractors know what to do. Mm -hmm. You don't have to retrain them when they come in to say, well, where does this go? They know because they've built that house before <laughs> in another neighborhood or down the street. 
um, and that all of that can contribute to the speed and the, the money, the savings on being able to replicate that. So again, it's you know an idea of we want people to come here and we want them to build good things and we want them to be able to replicate that. We want them to choose to come here and to come back because it was a good experience. So these are all ways we can foster a better experience for folks to build the kind of things we want to see. Obviously the big question is what do we want to see? That's what the <laughs> master plan's all about, is what do we want to see? And then the next step is how do we create a regulatory framework that enables what we want to see? Anything else, commissioners? All right, thank you. Thank you. All right, next item on our agenda, I uh, do want to provide the opportunity uh, and open it up for just any public comments in general. Public comments in general? All right, seeing none, um, we're at the end of our agenda unless I'm missing anything. All right, I'm looking for a final motion. I move that we adjourn. I'll second. I have a motion from Commissioner Decker and a second from Commissioner Bain to adjourn. All those in favor say aye. 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 Those opposed, same sign. We are adjourned. program is presented by a community producer through Midland Community Television. The City of Midland and MCTV are not responsible for the content of the program. The views presented do not necessarily represent those of the City of Midland or MCTV. If you would like to produce your own program, contact MCTV at 837-3474 or access our website cityofmidlandmi.gov slash MCTV. We hope you enjoy the following presentation.